You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of international correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. This week, we'll be hearing from London editor Dennis Staunton and our political editor Pat Leahy about the four-minute summit in Brussels at the weekend and the shapes being thrown by Theresa May and Jean-Claude Juncker as the two sides prepare to sit down and negotiate Brexit and what's it all mean for little old Ireland. And I'll be talking to Deputy Foreign Editor Dave McKechnie about a fascinating visit by him to Colombia, where peace has broken out after a 50-year war. He met guerrillas and politicians. How are they seeing the future? At the weekend, the EU 27, that is the 28 minus the UK, met to confirm the Commission negotiating mandate on Brexit. Not least was their decision to confirm that the challenges posed to Ireland are among their top priorities. The meeting declaration was all pre-cooked by officials, and so it didn't last very long. But over dinner, leaders got down to some of the real meat. Issues like the scheduling of different phases of talks and the relocation of the EU institutions from London. Dennis, the UK does not get to talk about the future trade relationship until what's been called sufficient progress uh, on what has been called the divorce talks. Shortening the gap between the two sets of talks is seen as important to the UK. What, what is at stake there? Well, what's at stake really is from the European point of view, they're determined that uh, the priority issues about the actual divorce settlement should be got out of the way very quickly. And these are about the rights of EU citizens living in Britain and the reciprocal rights of British citizens in, uh, living in the European Union, what happens to them after Brexit. Then some kind of a, a, a shape of the financial settlement, just what Britain owes in terms of obligations it has already made as an EU member state. And so what the, the the exit bill is going to be. And then the third category of issues is to do with Ireland and, uh, and Ireland's concerns. Now, Britain would like to uh, start everything together and to start talk about uh, a trade deal uh, in tandem with all the rest. The reason the Europeans don't want to do that is because they're worried that uh, Britain will try to play one part of the negotiations off against another, which it would be actually pretty normal in a lot of negotiations. And the pressure that the uh, European negotiators are under is from the member states. So, for example, a country like Poland is very concerned about the rights of its citizens living in Britain. Other countries like Germany and the Netherlands I want to make sure that if there is uh, some gap in terms of money uh, when Britain leaves, that they shouldn't have to make it up. So it's in their interest that Britain ponies up a decent amount of money as they head out the door. And so uh, the Europeans want to get all of that sorted in advance. But what they're saying is that actually they think that you could make sufficient progress on that by October to start parallel talks then on the future relationship, including trade. October is a very ambitious uh, dateline for the first uh, set of, if you could call it, phase one of, of the divorce talks. They will, of course, continue for a long period uh, after that. Do you get a sense that uh, these are issues in phase one which can be resolved reasonably fast and that there is a common ground on them? There's common ground on Ireland and there's common ground on the rights of citizens. The difficulty would be about the money. Now, again, I think what the Europeans are looking for here is not quite as ambitious as some people imagine. They're not actually expecting to agree on a figure by October and or, or indeed to have a check handed over. What they really want is to agree a met methodology to work out 
how do you establish uh, what Britain owes and what it is owed from the European Union? And then once you once they've agreed what they're talking about, they can then go off in little uh, working groups and work out what the actual figure is. And and do you you think that that is that is feasible by October? It's feasible if they can. It's feasible, obviously, if they can, uh, if they're starting somewhere uh, that it's possible to meet in terms of agreeing what they're talking about. Uh, you know, so if Britain accepts, as Theresa May did in her letter to uh, Donald Tusk on the 29th of March, uh, she accepted that there could be a question of making payments into the future. So Britain hasn't officially or formally ruled out paying anything into the European Union as it goes out. But it's just they haven't agreed what exactly are, are they talking about. And we'll come back specifically to that issue uh, later. Um, Pat, the Irish are delighted by the references made in the Declaration to our particular problems and also to the reference in the minutes to future status of Northern Ireland and United Ireland. It looks like free movement of people uh, and the common travel area will be part of the first phase of the of the divorce talks and the customs issues would be dealt with in the future relations talks and the trade talks. Is is that is that where we want it all to go? Yeah, I, I think you know there was a fair bit of Irish backslapping uh, went on uh, in the immediate wake of the summit. The Taoiseach in his post summit press conference was talking up his own achievements and the achievements of his government and paid kind of fairly generous tribute to the Irish officials that have been working on this pretty intensively I mean since uh, since and before the Brexit decision but I suppose you know with particular intensity over the last six months and all that is probably fair enough um, you know we knew from uh, from late March when uh, the draft Tusk document uh, was released that there would be pretty strong language, strong and specific specific language about Ireland in the EU's uh, statement of its negotiating priorities. Last week, then, news began to filter out that there would be this additional declaration included in the minutes, smoothing the way for uh, for Northern Ireland, uh, should it ever vote to uh, join the United Ireland to automatically become part of the EU in a way that is kind of much as with the, uh, you know, the, the, the small print, I suppose, of the declarations in the uh, in the priorities document proper. Much of this we knew was the pre-existing legal position. That I'd add two things to that. One is that it is still useful to have the declarations made, to have the uh, the Irish paragraph in the document in such strong and clear language, not just because it puts it down on paper, but also because I think it is indicative of uh, the sense that is around Europe that, you know, there are very serious issues for uh, for Ireland. This this language, if you like, is the expression of that realisation and the realisation is very important. The other thing I think to add is that, you know, say in relation to the common travel area where the EU's, de- where the declaration is that, um, you know, the arrangements, the bilateral arrangements between Ireland and the UK can continue insofar as they're compatible with EU law. Uh, I think the difficulty and the next stage of the challenge for the Irish government will be that where such practices, bilateral practices between Ireland and the UK 
are not in uh, are not compatible with EU law or are not clearly compatible with EU law, will the EU make exceptions or will it change uh, law to allow those practices to continue? But that's very much the next phase, I suppose. Uh, you know, I think that the the best summary is that the Irish side were justifiably happy with everything they have got so far. But as Atishik said, you're very much at the beginning of the process now. And there is, but there is in, implicit in this a distinction uh, that will be drawn between the free movement of people and uh, the, on the common travel area and the free movement of goods. And that could be the more difficult part of, of our uh, talks. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the common travel area, it seems to be, the Irish officials have done a lot of work convincing the European Commission that its operation should not be uh, incompatible in any way with EU law. And that I- involves not just free movement of people, but free movement of, of workers. Uh, the distinction being that people would be able to go and, uh, and work in the UK and, and British people would be able to come and work here in a way that may not apply to citizens of other e- EU members states. But the question of the border and the customs border, that really depends on on how any future border, customs border operates uh, to affect the movement of goods between Ireland and the UK. That depends on what sort of a trade deal is negotiated between the EU and the UK. And that, as you pointed out in your introduction, won't come until the second phase of the talks. The polite and very friendly uh, weekend tone of both sides has been somewhat disturbed by uh, detailed news reports from Germany about a conversation between Theresa May and Jean-Claude Juncker. Uh, She has dismissed it all as gossip. But it's, it's really quite interesting, isn't it, Dennis? It's very detailed gossip, if it's gossip. It's uh, an account in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zontagszeitung of a dinner that uh, Jean-Claude Juncker and Theresa May had at Downing Street last Wednesday evening with various of their aides and advisers. And uh, it's, it's clearly the leak came from uh, the commission. There's no real doubt about that. And, uh, and it describes this dinner, which sounds really like the dinner from hell, because from the time that uh, Juncker arrived with uh, Martin Selmayr, his uh, chief of staff, to have a drink with Theresa May and Oliver Robbins, who is the chief uh, civil servant in the Brexit department there, uh, the conversation started to go rather badly wrong. And, uh, and they had asked her about this problem that she had uh, with uh, Britain taking part in discussions about uh, the midterm review of the EU budget, which happens every so often, where they have to adjust various figures because th- different things have happened. And because of PERDA uh, in uh, the British Parliament, which basically means that uh, the government can't really do very much while an election is going on, or at least that it can't do anything that would leave a legacy for its successor, that the British have decided to pull out of this. So the um, commission side said, right, then we better have PERDA on all sides. And so we won't start any negotiations, formal or informal, with you on Brexit until after the election on June the 8th. Then they went to dinner. And uh, and they started then to talk about something to do, uh, various things to do with the negotiations. And the first thing was that Theresa May said, on this business of the uh, rights of EU citizens and British citizens, I'd like to get that sorted out, you know, straight away at the beginning. And Juncker said, absolutely, we fully agree. And she said, so let's do that at the uh, summit in June in Brussels, which is two weeks after the uh, British election. So he said, well, uh, you know, 
this is actually rather complicated. And uh, apparently his words is where I think uh, you underestimate this, Teresa. And he pulled out of his briefcase two huge piles of paper. One was the uh, EU-Canada uh, trade agreement and the other one was the Croatian accession agreement. And these are all thousands of pages and they weigh seven kilos between them. And he said, you know, we're really kind of talking about all kinds of complicated things here. So even with citizens' rights, you're talking about how do you deal with their access to healthcare systems, all the rest of it. I think he was talking about 25 separate decisions to be taken on the, the citizens' rights issue alone. Exactly. And that's the one where there is most agreement. And so then they got on to uh, the issue of the money. And she said, uh, well, of course, we don't really have to pay you a penny because there's nothing in the EU treaties uh, that says anything about an exit bill on the way out. And uh, Juncker said, well, you know, it's not a golf club. Uh, you've made various commitments as EU member states, and so you can't just kind of leave and walk away from them. And then David Davis, the Brexit secretary, said, uh, well, there's actually nothing you can do about it to enforce your demands because we'll be gone and the European Court of Justice won't hold any sway over us. And so Juncker then said, well, you know, that's uh, that may be true, but if you do that, then uh, there's not going to be very much uh, willingness among the member states to do a free trade deal with you. And because uh, they want they're not going to want to be stuck with uh, with your bill as you leave the restaurant. So uh, anyway, so then they moved on to the next part, which was about single market access. And Theresa May, who used to be Home Secretary, said, well, what about uh, Protocol 36 of the Lisbon Treaty? And this was the protocol which governed uh, the opt-outs which Britain and Ireland had from things like policing and justice and justice and home affairs. And the deal was that, uh, that both countries could opt out uh, of everything and then opt back into whatever ones they liked. So Theresa May in 2014 opted out of everything and then opted back into 35 really very important measures. So she said, couldn't we do that with the uh, single market? And so the heads were spinning at this stage on the European Commission side. And, uh, you know, and he said, you know, I, uh, the more I hear you talking, the more sceptical I become. And, uh, you know, I'm twice, I'm 10 times more sceptical now, he says he was leaving, than I was when I arrived here. Never was a dinner yeah. recorded in such a detailed way. I've always thought that a dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker would be quite a jolly affair, um, not least because of the impressive uh, consumption of wine that seems to uh, go with uh, the, the, the occasions. But actually... I think news of this dinner, and Dennis has a detailed account of it um, in this morning's paper, as a sign of the state of relations between Downing Street uh, and uh, the Commission is probably at least as significant a development as the summit conclusions over the, week, uh, over the weekend. I mean, it, is, it would lead one to a terribly pessimistic view of at least the opening round of the negotiations. Well, it's interesting you should say that I was speaking this morning to uh, some senior commission officials in Brussels, and apparently this came up this morning uh, at, the, at the most senior level. And what they uh, their attitude is that uh, it's crucial to get the message out that uh, these talks are going to be very difficult, very complicated, and there is a real risk that they should collapse or that they could collapse. And uh, they they're concerned that uh, people think that you know there's a view abroad that actually this is all very doable and it won't be too complicated. And I think they really were 
quite alarmed by what seemed to them to be just a very unrealistic approach on the British side. And also just the fact that uh, Theresa May and David Davis as well, who, let's face it, is the guy in charge of this, seem not really to understand very clearly how the European Union actually works. And I think also perhaps that the British do underestimate the, uh, the depth of the unity uh, within the 27 on the EU side. And that is because, as I mentioned earlier, the fact is that a lot of countries uh, have different reasons for wanting a tough line to be taken with Britain. Obviously, the difficulty is to know whether or not uh, the, this conversation involved negotiation posturing or a real real position and how strongly. And it's difficult to believe that, that either Theresa May or, da- or Davis actually believed uh, th- th- what they were saying, that it's surely uh, 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 setting out a, a, an extreme position in order to come in a bit uh, as soon as the talk's done. I think that might be true where the money is concerned. I'm sure they, uh, you know, and in fact, pretty self-evidently, they know that there's going to be some money paid over. And so you might as well start from the position of actually, really, we don't owe you anything. You think we owe you X, so let's get somewhere in the middle. Uh, so that's fair enough. I think the, uh, coming up with this idea uh, about uh, you know, comparing the single market to being able to opt in and out of justice and home affairs as an EU member state it, that does actually seem really quite detached from reality, as opposed to just a kind of a pretty tough opening uh, gambit. Pat, how does uh, that conversation uh, between May and Juncker play into Irish hopes? Well, it, I think it demonstrates the danger to Ireland of the talks going badly off the rails, because albeit that, you know, Ireland consistently maintains that it is will be negotiating as one of the 27 and you know I think that relationship if anything has been strengthened in um, in recent months by the very close contacts at political and uh, official level the fact remains that the harder the brexit the worse for Ireland and you know uh, there are many EU countries who will be not very affected by the the texture of the Brexit or the hardness of the Brexit one way or the other. There are others such as France and Germany who don't want to see um, who don't want to see a hard Brexit but are prepared to endure it uh, if they cannot reach a satisfactory uh, agreement with uh, with the British. There's, you know, on the other hand, there's many camps, uh, there's different camps in the UK as well of, of which have a different preference for the hardness or otherwise of the Brexit to take place. But what concerns Ireland is the likelihood of that, uh, of that happening. And were you to take the weekend's events, uh, t- take both of the major weekends events, the news of uh, the news of this uh, this dinner which took place last week, and the the unity and resolve demonstrated are vocalized at least by EU countries in uh, in Brussels at the summit. That leads you to think that uh, the sky just darkened, I think for uh, for Ireland in, uh, in in respect of the likely outcome. I mean, we were a long way from a conclusion of it, of course, but the likely outcome, I think, just became darker for Ireland. Thank you very much, Dennis, and thank you, Pat. You're listening to the Irish Times. Dave McKechnie, you're just back from a visit to Colombia that took you from urban Bogota to jungle guerrilla retreats, and you spoke to politicians, fighters of the FARC insurgent group, to victims' families and, and many others. 
This has been a 52-year war which has led to the death of 220,000 people at the hands of guerrillas, paramilitaries and state actors. Several million people have been internally displaced. Did you get a sense uh, that Colombia's war is finally over and that the peace process is irreversible? Well, Paddy, I, th- I think certainly um, what surprised me about it was actually that um, was how comfortable everybody seemed uh, with the idea that, f- that, that, that the war would never return in the way it had um, and that FARC were committed absolutely to um, uh, to peace at this stage and, and that actually not many people expressed fears that it would ever fail in that way. But, but there are a lot of other kind of extenuating um, circumstances that might lend itself to future armed conflict that it might sort of you know morph into something else um if if either the the peace deal doesn't isn't carried through in full um on, on each side so you might get you know dissidents uh, a growing number of dissidents um and particularly that the the problem at the moment seems to be um you know the other armed actors outside of FARC um uh, the other armed groups paramilitaries as as most people call them now, although the government doesn't use that term, um, they say that the the paramilitaries have been decommissioned and that these are these are armed groups really involved in in crime, criminal activities, which is the case. But um, many and, the, and these yeah, are armed groups on the right and on the left, uh, mostly on the right, yeah, on the right. Uh, so you've obviously got the ELN as well, who are active and they're on the left, um, although they're they're involved in the, in the peace talks at the moment, which are believed to. Uh, it's going to be very complicated in itself but these groups are really on the right so a lot of the concern in the country at the moment is around what's happening since the peace deal there's been quite a spike in, in the killings of so, killing of social leaders and a lot of people in the communities where I visited um, uh, were telling me you know, that paramilitaries have already moved in where FARC have left um, and so they weren't really from their own perspectives they weren't particularly optimistic because they just said well one armed group leaves another one another one moves in the the deal was thrashed out in four years of peace talks in havana and it runs to about 290 300 pages uh it was rejected in in a plebiscite in in october and less than two months later another agreement which was substantially the same i think was approved by by parliament this time what are the main elements of the peace deal some of some of the subjects we'd be we'd be quite uh, familiar with so decommissioning uh, reparations for victims um so transitional justice mechanism um introduced um some of the um uh, really specific ones uh, to colombia um relate to uh, dr- uh, the cocoa crop obviously drug drug trafficking is a, is a huge issue in the country so trying to introduce a, a crop substitution me- uh, mechanism for uh, for peasants, so uh, that they have an uh, alternative income. Land reform. There's land reform issues. You know, some of those. Th- those are the uh, some of the main some of the main issues. Yeah. Now your travels took you to the far northwest of of uh, the country, to an encampment at a place called Florida. Uh, it was pretty basic. It was where FARC guerrillas were coming in to uh, decommission their weapons. How, how, what was the camp like, and how was their view of the disarmament process and of their future? Yeah, it was it was an interesting experience because um, before I, I left, I I, um, I had read about the difficulties in in, um, in in the camps. They were supposed to be uh, finished by the uh, end of January because that's when all the FARC uh, guerrillas were supposed to be in the camps, um, and so they were supposed to be up and running by then. But this was um, early March. 
and the, the camp I was in wasn't even had barely been started being built. Um, and the, the FARC were living in a camp next to the where the, it was being built, the permanent camp, um, which is the government government built camp. Um, and they themselves had built that little camp for themselves. Obviously, they were used to building camps once a week. They move um, they move encampments, so they put that up in a day themselves. So they were sort of just um, really waiting, and they they were helping to build the main camp uh, itself. So um, I would say that uh, the atmosphere in in the I met quite a few people there, and they were very happy to talk, um, quite relaxed. Um, I think they were quite frustrated. Um, both had, uh, particularly the building, the building uh, part of it is obviously um, sapped their confidence a little bit. The fact that the government hadn't managed to get these camps in place where they're supposed to hand over their weapons. So I suppose they feel like there's a deadline for themselves that they're going to have to meet, which is May the 31st. They're supposed to decommission by hand their weapons over in these camps by the 31st of May to the United Nations. And I think they felt that the government if wasn't living up to their end of the bargain, first of all, by not having the camps in place. And then there were other issues around uh, uh, amnesties for for prisoners, um, re-education programs that are part of the of the uh, peace deal that they've been promised. There was no sign of them starting, so they felt, I think, that they were giving a lot um, and, and and maybe not getting anything so far. No sign of it. So they're a little, but I, they did they did also express, you know, that they were committed to it and and, and that they were going to stick it out. And I think there was a sense that they trusted the government to a degree. Um, like for you know, I think over the years in Havana, over the peace deal, uh, when the peace deal was being thrashed out, there was four years of talks there. I think they did build up a certain amount of confidence in the government's, at least the government's desire to carry through on this. I think maybe some of them feel that they maybe don't. Have, the government has overpromised maybe a little bit or doesn't have the means. Many of them have spent twenty years uh, in in the jungle, mm. uh, living in in temporary camps, moving constantly under fire. Uh, in combat uh, situations, uh, that there is a huge change expected of them, and is, uh, is there a big psychological burden involved in leaving the jungle and, and becoming part of society? Yeah, I mean, this was this kind of um, this was. Uh, some of them spoke to me about this. I mean, some of them are um, are preparing already for for life in civilian life. Um, um, some have bought pets. Um, you could see rabbits around the. Uh, People have pet rabbits at the bottom of their bunks. Um, they uh, five of the women are pregnant in this uh, particular group of 160 uh, gorillas, um, and one of the commanders who's been in uh, there for 30 years in in the FARC for 30 years um, uh, spoke of of how sort of uneasy he was at the idea of not being surrounded by all these by his friends in the jungle, you know, and sort of that he felt a little bit. Um, like he he was a bit worried about that, you know, going back to what it would be like just living in a house, you know. And what will he and they do? I mean, how will they earn a living? How will they be integrated? Will <coughs> some of them go into politics? Well, actually, um, all of them. Uh, w- one of them was joking to me, Natalie Mistral, who is, as her nom de guerre is, um, she's uh, the Fr- French gorilla in the in the front where, where I visited, and and uh, she was kind of joking that we all kind of have political ideas, but none of us actually want to run. For office, you know, so so they all uh, mostly they seem to get want to get involved in politics in a sort of a an abstract way, or, or you know, sort of um, some in education, um, but no, none of them um, that I, no, none of the FARC uh, that I met wanted to get wanted to be involved in actually the political process, uh, but some of them, um, say Natalie Mistral and and a few of the others, they're all making plans to. Um, 
may start some kind of collective to get together after the after the um, after they're freed. So they actually want to stick together. They all get a certain amount of money, um, a few thousand, uh, the equivalent of a few thousand euros, uh, you know, as part of the deal. They're all, all going to get some kind of um, seed money. And uh, they're all thinking of, you know, putting all this together and seeing if they could start businesses. She was talking to me about maybe some kind of a ecotourism project in Choco or on the Pacific coast. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure they could, they could build a camp quickly enough anyway, but... Um, <laughs> Well, one of the, the, the problems that is arising is, you, you, and you mentioned this, is the, the problem with the uh, eradication of cocoa crops. And there have been demonstrations in rural areas, not involving FARC people, but local people, about how the transition is, is brought about, how, uh, how much money the government is going to give them for alternative crops, how, what sort of facilities they're getting, and a sense that the eradication is is being forced on them in a rather one-sided way. Yeah, I mean, this area around Tumaco, which is um, uh, south uh, in the South Pacific coast, um, there's been a lot of unrest there around this issue. Um, and there's now forced eradication of crops also, so which is very contentious um, of the cocoa crop. Um, so this is really kind of fundamental to the whole thing, which is that there isn't really... Um, there aren't alternatives to the cocoa crop in place, and there, all, there also isn't the infrastructure in these areas. Uh, so if, if, say, farmers, peasants have have their own um, businesses or they, they have their own sub substitution crop, they can't possibly get those into the marketplace because there's no... There's no, um, there's no roads, or there's no transport, there's no infrastructure. So it's actually kind of fundamental that, that these areas, the, the lack of investment and the lack of institutional presence in these areas is, is kind of tied in with the problem with the cocoa crop as well because that's the only way that they have an income. Um, so the government is obviously... Actually, the cocoa crop has has grown in the last few years. It's it's actually it continues to grow. It hasn't under Santos, the president, it hasn't reduced. It's actually grown. So it, it's it's an ongoing issue. And alongside that, then, and, and somehow related to it, is the problem of the displaced, with the, with huge numbers of people still displaced from from their homes. Thirteen thousand last year alone, uh, forced to move from their homes. And is there any sign that they are being able to go home? Um, not really, but it, that is a very complex, complicated subject. It, 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 there was a land restitution restitution law in 2011, so it is trying to to um, to try to get people who have lost, been driven from their land over the years, to try to get them back to their land. But it is very difficult. A lot of these people don't have property titles, um, and so just like working that through that process, through the legal process, takes years. So that's one end, and the other end is the fact that new people are newly displaced because of those armed groups I mentioned earlier who are moving into uh, areas that FARC have, have uh, vacated. So, I mean, the numbers are way down on what they were a few years ago, absolutely, at the height of the, um, the crisis, uh, height of the war, but they're still quite a substantial number um, and, and, and being driven out of their, their homes for, by, by paramilitaries who, who are... It's a hugely you know, complicated process, this, this mm. peace process, on, on all sorts of, of different levels, and, and one bit that doesn't work unless everything else works too, so mm. interrelated. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about the victims issue, because I, th I was struck in your report 
of of how, if you like, there's a parity of esteem to to victims uh, in a way that we certainly don't have in the north. Um, we tend to look on victims of paramilitaries in one way and victims of state forces in, in another. At least there are complaints that they are. That that isn't the case there. There seems to be a recognition on all sides that victims are victims. That's right. Um one one of the victims, uh, Marta Amorocho, uh, her her son, her two sons were involved in a bombing or were caught up in the bombing in 2003, at a social club in Bogota. Um, one of them was killed and one was badly injured. And she went to Havana and she sort of spoke or talked me through the process there. Um, there was 60 victims um, invited to Havana, uh, and there was um, five delegations. So that was 12 on each of those delegations. And they were split into three. There was four victims of the FARC, four of uh, paramilitaries and four of the state. So each of them got their say. Um, and this is all, I, I think I think overall, it's, it's, it's trying to change maybe perceptions of the conflict in the country and internationally, which is FARC versus the government is really how, FARC versus the state is how it's perceived, I suppose, this conflict. But it is very complicated and, and, and much more complex than that. There are a lot of armed groups uh, over the years. Um, the official um, historic, uh, National Centre for Historical Memory has recorded, I think, 60% of victims since 1980 um, in, in mass, involved in massacres. Massacre victims were by paramilitaries. So FARC have a huge responsibility in the conflict, absolutely. But um, it is... It is the responsibility is split up, and I think the government has recognised that in recent years. And I actually met one of the um, one of the FARC um, guerrillas in Bogota, Tanya Neymar. She has a quite an interesting story herself. From she's Dutch Dutch woman who uh, joined the FARC in in two thousand and two, and um, she was in the delegation as well in Havana. And um, she suggests herself that the idea she feels that that the perception of what the in in this, but certainly the media in Colombia has shifted in the last five years since the talk started because the definition of victim in, in Colombia has shifted a bit, and and people are maybe recognizing that it's maybe more less simplistic than just an insurgency, the one insurgency that there's two, there's a lot of guns in the country and a lot of victims. Thank you very much, Dave. And I would just recommend to listeners Dave's series in the Irish Times this week on his trip to Colombia, which was supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Simon Commerce Fund. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Pat Leahy and Dave McKechnie, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs> 